you think about it, since the beginning of time, everything that humanity has been doing is to mitigate in some way our difficulties or those things that are unsatisfying, those things that limit life, and try to gain a greater sense of viability, satisfaction, fulfillment. After Adam's sin, God cursed the land. It's going to resist you and you will live by the sweat of your brow. And so man looks for ways to mitigate that difficulty and make farming and harvesting and acquiring to be easier. Everything that we do, we do for some level of satisfaction or fulfillment. Or to gain a greater sense of purpose, viability in life. I'm thinking of the woman that Jesus encountered in Samaria. Remember that he told his disciples, I need to go through Samaria. Something that Jews at all costs sought to avoid. The disciples did not know why Jesus knew. He had an appointment with a woman. And he met her at the well while his disciples went into the town. And in the midst of their conversation, Jesus reminded her that she had five husbands and the man that she was living with now was not her husband. She had gone from one relationship to another, seeking something that one or the other did not provide, that she could not gain, looking for a relationship that had greater viability, greater purpose, greater affirmation for her as an individual, one that was more life-giving. We are looking at John 15. We have entitled this chapter, Jesus's Viability Theology, and it's built around this metaphor that Jesus uses. And the principles of viability that he lays out. We are looking at a study that we have entitled The Paradigm of Viability. It's based on the first four verses. And this is our second part of our study, The True Vine. Look at the words in the first four verses with me. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Again, Jesus is building what he is saying in this chapter around a metaphor. The first part of that metaphor is himself. I am the true vine. The second part is the Father 
My father is the gardener. The third part has to do with you and me. Every branch. And the purpose of a branch is to bear fruit. There is a principle that goes with fruit bearing. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. And so Jesus said four times in that fourth verse, Remain in me. You cannot bear fruit unless you remain in me. The Father as the gardener prunes. He prunes every branch that bears fruit for a specific purpose so that it will be even more fruitful. This is Jesus' paradigm of viability. And it is all predicated upon this first part of his metaphor, upon this foundational truth, I am the true vine. Now we looked at this last week. We looked at its background. We saw its use in the Old Testament and how Jesus used numerous parables that emphasized this vine metaphor. And he connected them to the kingdom of God, giving us this understanding that you and I can only be part of the kingdom of God as we are in relationship with Jesus, as we remain in him because he is the vine in these parables of the kingdom. This truth about Jesus, I am the true vine, is something that cannot be overemphasized. In Jeremiah chapter 2, in verse 21, God used this metaphor of a vine speaking to Israel, and he said, I had planted you, like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt and wild vine? What is interesting is that on every occasion in which God depicted Israel as a vine he had planted, Israel was seen as a degenerate vine, one that was incapable of producing the fruit of righteousness or accomplishing the purpose for which God had planted it. What had Israel done? Instead of choosing the words that God had spoken to them, words that Moses emphasized to the people before they went into the promised land, were words of life, and he urged them to choose life and not to choose death. To choose words that would bring blessing so that they would not experience a curse. Israel did not listen, just as Moses knew that they would not. Because the human heart is stubborn, it's self-seeking. 
It's inherently sin-oriented. And so Israel chose an alternate source of life, which is in fact an alternate object of worship. And in doing so, they produce the fruit of that source. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God declared, They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. In verse 5, the second part, he said, They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. These are words of severe condemnation. And yet, if you read chapter 2 of Jeremiah, they are among the more mild terms that God uses to characterize his people and what they have become. Because they have forsaken him, the true source of life. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. One of the interesting passages that uses this metaphor of vine in the Old Testament is Psalm 80. In Psalm 80, the prophet Asaph is praying for Israel. Israel that has experienced judgment because of their sinfulness. And in a very extraordinary insight given by the Holy Spirit, the prophet Asaph gave prophetic identification to the one who would become God's true vine. The one that John characterizes as him who is in closest relationship to the Father. Look at this passage from Psalm 80. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest upon the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Do you see how extraordinary this passage is? Now, I've taken the liberty to capitalize the references that have messianic fulfillment and pronouns that would refer to Jesus. Our Bibles don't typically capitalize those pronouns. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted. You and I can see in those words the references in Isaiah to the Messiah, who would be the branch of 
the stump of Jesse, the root from which righteousness would come. Asaph refers back to Israel when he said, Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire, at your rebuke your people perish. And then he comes back under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a messianic reference. Let your hand rest upon the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. In our study of John, we have looked at this reference, Son of Man. We have seen how Jesus used it exclusively for himself. How he is the Son of Man because he has been appointed by the Father to be our substitute, to be our representative, to be our means of the second Adam, the one who would be perfect in bringing us to salvation. The man at your right hand, oh, that so closely aligns with John saying in chapter 1 and verse 18, the one who is in closest relationship to the Father, he has made the Father known. From the Old Testament, God has been declaring that his son would be the true vine that he has planted. Israel failed, but where Israel failed, Christ, the true vine, will succeed. So, thinking of Jesus as the true vine from the Father, as the one and only full of grace and truth. John's reference in his prologue, verse 14. The sole source of salvation and true life. Thinking of the words that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. In chapter 10 and verse 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give life and life abundantly. So, this emphasis was Jesus' consistent and persistent presentation of himself. He alone was what people needed. Their need was why he came. And he, and he alone, was what the Father wanted for people. Look at just a few of the presentations that Jesus made of himself that fit this characterization, that he is the true vine from the Father, the one and only who is full of grace and truth the sole source of salvation and true life. As Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well in Samaria, he said, Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
In chapter 5, after the healing of the paralytic man by the pool, Jesus in his dialogue with the Jews who were opposing him, opposing his characterization of himself as the Son and the Father's representative, he said, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged because he has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. In John chapter 6, verses 56 and 57, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. standing at the tomb where Lazarus had been buried, speaking to Lazarus's sister, Martha, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you see what Jesus is doing throughout his time of ministry? In dialogue with different people in different settings, different occasions for why he is saying what he is saying, consistently and persistently, Jesus presents himself as the true vine who is from the Father as the sole source of salvation and life. What he has come to give has been delegated to him by the Father. Remember how we have seen Jesus emphasizing that he is the only authorized representative, the only one who can sufficiently make the Father known the only one who can fully disclose the Father's heart, the Father's will and purposes. Jesus alone can give life. Jesus alone has the authority, the ability to declare that someone has crossed over from death to life. the only one who can grant life to others so that they will never die, the only one who can give someone the kind of life that he himself possesses in his relationship with the Father. Jesus uniquely and solely can declare, I am the true vine. 
Every declaration which Jesus has made concerning himself is summed up in this statement, I am the true vine. It is bursting with implications. And the implication of these words is the fundamental premise for every apostolic truth asserted about Jesus. You can go through the Acts of the Apostles. You can read through the letters written by the different apostles. Everything that they say concerning Jesus comes back to this bottom line that Jesus is the true vine, the sole source of life. Look at just a few with me. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles have been brought before the Sanhedrin. They are called to answer for the man who had been healed in the name of Jesus. And when told to speak no more in this name, they responded in this way. Know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is, quote, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. End of quote. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter was quoting from Psalm 118. And he was declaring this truth that Jesus himself had emphasized when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When he declared, I am the true vine. When through his other statements he had asserted that he was the sole source of salvation. Peter declares, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Let's remind ourselves once again as we did in last week's study. That when Jesus would say, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the true vine. That in using those words, I am, they were words in the Old Testament that were distinctively and exclusively attributed to God. His exclusive, self-existent nature as God. And in Isaiah, as God makes these declarations, declaring that he is, that he is the one and only Savior. In those references in Isaiah, he declares that there is no other name, which Peter emphasizes as he speaks to the Sanhedrin. In Romans chapter 5, Verses 17 to 18, 
For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. That is a profound passage of Scripture. It's mind-blowing. One sin by Adam damned everyone. One sin by Adam resulted in death reigning over everyone. And through Jesus Christ, one righteous act, the sacrifice of his life on the cross, was so sufficient that it overcame sin, resulting in justification, righteousness, and life for all people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We won't elaborate on it. I'll just call your attention to it. We have seen how Jesus has used this little word in to emphasize the profundity of relationship between him and the Father and him and those who are truly in relationship with him. So whenever you are reading outside of these passages where Jesus uses that terminology, pay attention whenever you find it expressed in a similar way, such as here, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Apostle Paul, making argument to the Galatians, who had abandoned the work of Jesus Christ and were trusting in their own efforts of righteousness to justify them before God, he said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I no longer live. There's no source of life in me. Writing to the Philippians in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul cataloged the way that he lived and what was significant and meaningful in the eyes of other people in the way that he was living in the status that he had acquired. And then he declared, but I counted all nothing. Because he came to understand 
that it did not gain life in its end. It did not bring what everyone was searching for that could only be gained in Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live is directly connected to the Son of God. In the following verse, he said to the Galatians, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now, that's significant in what he has just said. It's also significant in connection to the passage that we read from Romans chapter 5. Righteousness can only be gained through Jesus Christ. If it's possible to gain it in any other way, that invalidates the whole purpose for which Christ came. The whole mission that he endeavored to carry out as the Father's authorized representative. The reality is, there is no other path to righteousness, to justification, to life, except through Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then he enumerates a number of those blessings such as choosing us before the creation of the world, predestining us to be adopted. And he sums it up by saying, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Every spiritual blessing in Christ is ours through the one he loves. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 and verses 3 through 4, the Apostle Paul wrote, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, one of the things that I find so fascinating about this verse is when the Apostle Paul said, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Because that reminds me of a number of verses of Scripture, but notably the one that we have already looked at this evening from Psalm 80. The man at your right hand. Jesus, who has always been at the Father's right hand. Hebrews chapter 1, which speaks of the Father having spoken in past times in various ways and through the prophets on different occasions. 
but in the last time, he has spoken through his son. The son who is the exact representation of the father, the radiance of God's glory, who provided purification for sins, and after he had done so, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ, who is our source of salvation, is at the Father's right hand. Where should our focus and our attention be? It should be on Him. We should set our hearts on things above where Christ is. In verse 2, He said, Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. And then He went on to say, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Jesus said that he is in the Father, and we are in him. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Remember what we read from John chapter 6 where Jesus said that the Father's life is in him, and that if we wanted to live, his life needed to be in us. John wrote in his first letter, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Once again, we said that every statement that the apostles would make concerning Jesus was based upon the implications of what Jesus was saying when he said, I am the true vine. John very succinctly says it here. Life is in the Son. If you have the Son, you have life. If you do not have the Son of God who is the true vine, you don't have life. In Revelation 21 and verse 6, Jesus is speaking to John. And John records, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give water without cost, from the spring of the water of life. Do those words sound familiar? They do. We heard Jesus saying them to the woman at the well. He would say them again as he was at the feast and stood up on the last day in the temple. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, and I will give him freely of this water. And here is Jesus saying to John, at the end of the revelation that he has received, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end.
I am the source of life. I am the living water. I am the fountainhead of life. I am the true vine. That word true comes from the Greek word aethinos. And it means true. It is true in the sense of the relationship of a concept to something that is corresponding. Jesus saying, I am the true vine. It means genuine as opposed to that which is false. One of the interesting things about the temple was that at the entrance into the holy place, there was the carving of the vine. This is Herod's temple, the one in Jesus' day. And through the years, Jews who came to worship would bring jewels and they would be added to this carving, creating clusters of fruit and extending this carving of the vine, making it very ornate. Jesus, however, is the true vine. He's not a false vine. He's not an empty vine. He's not a lifeless vine. He's not a humanly adorned vine. But what's really interesting for me is as you look at this word, it comes from a root word, alithrace, which means true as not concealed. Something that has been revealed to be true. And that word comes from a compound. The second part of that compound is lanthano, which means to lie hidden. What's interesting for me is that the first part of that compound word is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, alpha. So I find in this a, a beautiful picture. And when Jesus says these words, I am the alpha. I am the beginning. I am the one who has been revealed to be the Savior, the only source of light. I am the beginning and the end. I am the one who is the sole means of people having eternal life. To the thirsty I give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. This is something that he will say again before the revelation is closed and he declares, let no more words be added to or taken from. 
Now, what's the significance of all of this for you and for me this evening? First of all, every other vine fails to give life. People pursue a thousand different vines as a source of life and satisfaction. Some are very overt. Others are more subtle, instinctive. We have a craving for something to eat. We don't really need it. But we have this craving, and so we open the refrigerator door looking for something. We have a feeling of restlessness or boredom, so we sit down and we surf through the cable channels looking for something to watch. What we are doing is just pursuing something that will satisfy us. Every vine, however, fails to give life. Only Jesus, as the psalmist said, the Son of Man you have raised up for yourself. The true vine planted by the Father can meet the deepest, most urgent, and eternal needs of humanity. All other vines are insufficient, deceptive, and toxic. You and I, understanding this because we have come to the true vine, should have a deep and compelling motivation concerning those who are seeking satisfaction from every other vine. Our hearts should be deeply motivated to pray, to witness, to sound an alarm to people, to act as Jude said, snatch people from the burning, save others, do everything you can to rescue people. Why? Because this desire that they are trying to satiate within them by going to this means or that means, this vine or that, ultimately will destroy them. You and I understand through the scriptures that we have read that there is only one source of life. That people can only be right with God. People can only escape the condemnation that comes from sin. The consequence of death can only be at peace with God, can only have the prospect of eternal life if they know Jesus. If you and I saw someone physically about to eat something that we knew was toxic, would kill them instantly. Will we just sit there and watch them consume it? I don't think so. I think that we would jump up 
try to snatch it out of their hands, preserve their lives. If we saw someone standing on the key bridge about to jump off, would we just stop our cars and get out to watch the show? No, we would want to rescue that person. Shouldn't we be even more compelled knowing that every other vine is ultimately toxic, ultimately destructive, that everything else that people turn to is just a deception, a distraction to keep them from the true vine. Shouldn't then we be deeply compelled to turn people to Jesus Christ? Secondly, as branches, we cannot be any more than our abiding in the true vine. Theoretically, thinking about a grapevine, for example, the branch has available to it all the sufficiency of the vine. Positionally, you and I have fullness in Christ. We have his righteousness credited to our account. We have all of his sufficiency positionally. Experientially, however, it is a different matter. We only experience his fullness to the extent that we are pruned of those aspects of life that are unvine-like. And as we learn, the life of abiding as a branch in the true vine. Those things that are unchristlike in our lives, they need to go. They rob us of fullness in Christ. They rob us of his peace, his life, his sufficiency. They rob us and dilute the anointing, the power, the effectiveness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. They need to be pruned by the Father. And you and I need to learn to deeply, intimately abide in Jesus. In a way, it's really very simple. The Apostle Paul has emphasized it to us already this evening. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Set your minds on things above, and not on things of this earth, no matter what they are, whether they are within us, whether they are around us. For your life is hid with Christ in God. The more that you and I Set our hearts, our eyes, our minds, and thoughts, our desires, our time, 
on the one who is the true vine, the more that we will experience the fullness of his life within us. May that be the compelling impulse of your heart and mine. Amen. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have had to open your word this evening. It's a privilege that we know many people do not have. And we thank you for this opportunity. Father, we pray that you would give the Holy Spirit. We ask you for your spirit. We ask for the spirit to come and teach us about Jesus. We ask for your spirit to continue to reveal to us the truth of what we have studied this evening, the words that Jesus himself has spoken, the implications of this statement, I am the true vine. We pray that you would help us learn to deeply abide in Christ, that our hearts and our lives would cease to be influenced by so many other desires, longings, things that are distractions, that it would be Jesus and Jesus alone as the vine, whose life we experience, whose influence we experience, whose fullness we experience. Father, we pray that you would prune us of those things that are not like the vine, of those things that add no spiritual value to our lives, of those things that diminish and deplete us. For we need and we want everything that Jesus is. Do this, Father so that he might be glorified in our lives. In his name, the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.